Welcome back to the second series of Unlocking the SDGs, a blueprint for the future. In this podcast, we explore the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and what they mean for society. I'm Professor Monica Lacampour, Professor of Integrated Community Child Health in the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute for Child Health. And I'm Professor Preeti Parikh, Professor of Infrastructure Engineering and International Development at the UCL Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction. The Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in 2015 to provide a set of global targets for the world to achieve by 2030. As we are now only seven years away from that milestone of 2030, today we are considering what progress has been made and what might come next. What are the challenges that affect the implementation of the SDGs? How can governments respond to them? And how can we use that knowledge to ensure that whatever the next phase of the goals look like, it is effective? This episode was recorded in autumn 2023. As this is such an interesting topic, and there is a lot for us to discuss, we have decided to tackle it over two episodes. In the last episode, we spoke to Professor Ruth Morgan from UCL Security and Crime Science, and Professor Andrew Origan from the UCL Bartlett Development Planning Unit. Today, I'm pleased to say that we're joined by Professor Sean Fox and Dr. Jessica Espy from the University of Bristol. We'll be looking at the goals from a slightly different perspective and hearing about the pioneering partnership between their university and Bristol City Council, which led to the publication of the UK's very first voluntary local review and the integration of the SDGs into Cities One City Plan. Dr Espy was involved in the conceptualisation of the city's goal in her former capacity as a director at the UN. So she will also share her views on how effectively the goals are being localised around the world. Welcome to you both. Thank you for inviting us. I've been enjoying the, uh, the podcast series and I'm very delighted to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. In previous episodes, we've talked about international responses to the SDGs. But you've been working on a project here in the UK, in Bristol. Can you tell us a bit about the Bristol One City Initiative? and how you've been involved as part of the University of Bristol. Sean, would you be able to tackle that question for me, please? Sure, and I'll, I'll try to summarize as succinctly as possible because there's a few different parts to this. Um, the one city approach is essentially a governance innovation that came about in many ways in response to the challenges that the city was facing and particularly a long period of austerity where city budgets have been steadily cut um, while demands for services uh, and, and indeed, many different sorts of challenges have been rising. So we have falling budgets and and growing challenges. And this isn't unique to Bristol. This is all over all over the UK. So faced with this situation, the idea was to bring together stakeholders from across the city government from from different departments, but also from non-governmental stakeholders such as businesses and and community organisations, and then to try to collectively agree on a vision for the city, and to stimulate collaboration to achieve that vision. And the vision that was agreed upon is that by 2050, we want to make Bristol a fair, healthy, and sustainable city where everybody can share in its success. That's the, the vision for the one city plan. And the key point with this background, I think, is to 
to say that there was a really a proactive group of citizens interested in the global goals in Bristol. And there was a really strong civil society infrastructure in place to support their initiative. In other words, it's important to be clear that it wasn't the local government that started or got the ball rolling on localization. It was it was actually civil society, if you will. And I think that's an important detail in the story of, of Bristol. Now, I became involved uh, when there was an opportunity to get some university research funding for collaborative initiatives. And that was around 2017, 2018. And so the Bristol Green Capital Partnership and I and the city office, which is managing the one city plan, bid for some funds to hire a part-time SDG research and engagement associate. The person we hired is Alan McLeod. In the UK, there wasn't a lot of action in terms of developing a, a voluntary national review. There wasn't a lot of resource going into that. And moreover, we were, as an ambitious city, we wanted to try to do something to take the lead on this and, and follow New York's lead. So we published the very first voluntary local review in 2019. And we looked at all 17 goals, no, not just goal 11 for cities, but we looked at all 17 goals in the city. We compiled data on over 140 indicators. And then we did that again in 2022 after the pandemic. And in the meantime, based on that experience, we've been helping provide some guidance to other UK local authorities on how they can integrate and monitor the SDGs. And so now the SDGs were ultimately integrated into that one city plan. I mean, this is a great exemplar and I'm already in awe of you. And I know we've got lots to, lots more to hear from you. Thinking about relationship building, embedding yourself within the community, within the people you're working with, I think it's coming through very strongly that to build trust relationships, you have to be physically there um, amongst everybody that you're working with. Another key point of what you're bringing forward is really the role of civil society and the fact that this was bottom up, it came from civil society and that's why this was so strong. And I'm really excited by the ambition, really, from Bristol uh, City Council. Uh, it's good to see kind of serious efforts to embed SDGs into monitoring, evaluation, the core business. Uh, Bristol is a large and diverse city, and it's comparatively wealthy in global terms. We've talked before about how relevant the goals are in different contexts. But given this diversity, how have you approached measuring Bristol's achievements towards the goals? Has there been a helpful framework or are there areas where they don't really apply? Yeah, I mean, I can offer a sort of a, a brief reflection from Bristol and, and then Jessica has a, a broader, I think, global view on this. Um, so in short, when we started looking at producing our voluntary local review and therefore going through all the goals, the targets and the indicators, it very quickly became clear that they were conceptualized in relation to nation states not local governments, not companies, NGOs, community organizations. These targets and indicators were really designed for national statistical offices, basically. So many of the targets and indicators weren't directly relevant at the city or regional scale. So we basically tried to capture the spirit of every target from a local perspective. And we tried to select data that was available, uh, that was relevant to that target, even if it didn't map really neatly onto the target or its associated indicators. So we, we basically... We improvised. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Sean, for that great overview that you've provided on the situation and experience of the city of Bristol. Just to be clear, I myself haven't really worked much in the city of Bristol beyond being at the university now, but I wanted to draw on some previous experience. So in my former capacity, I was a director of a UN agency, a research network, and one of the projects that we ran, and we actually were a little bit, I don't know if I think the word could be a little bit arrogant or cocky about it, is even before the SDGs were agreed in 2014, we started working with a number of cities around the world, including three U.S. cities, Baltimore and Maryland, San Jose in California and New York, to start looking at the relevance of the SDG agenda subnationally and how it could be localized. 
And just some general observations from that, which very much chime with what Sean's been saying, which is that across these cities, we found that the value of the Sustainable Development Goal Framework was not so much in the specific targets and measures, because as Sean said, they needed to be tailored to, you know, they're highly tailored to each individual context. And you need to find very specific local contextual data in almost all of the cities in which I worked, three in the US, uh, two in Latin America, a number in Sub-Saharan Africa. It was having this global um, policy agreement and framework to set a common language of sustainable development to really explain what the concept of sustainable development is and how it could apply in your local context so that you could think about it, re it with relevance to your neighborhood and think about how you empower people in your locality to take action on it. And it's not just some kind of complex and amorphous concept that we're helpless to change, if you will. It's something that's actually highly relevant to your local environment. And people found that the agenda incredibly helpful to start that conversation about what sustainable development is and how it applies in your neighborhood. Thank you for identifying the fact that whilst the SDGs is a global agenda, there'll be local needs and priorities and we need to really localize and contextualize the SDGs. And this reminds me of a piece of work that I'm leading with the South African government, where I'm working with colleagues like Monica and others from various departments and faculties at UCL where we are helping the South African government to localize and then prioritize SDG targets for monitoring and evaluation in Durban. Because one of the issues they brought up was that there are 169 targets, which one we should localize and prioritize, right? And that will vary context to context. So I think it's really been helpful to hear your kind of insights into frameworks and means in which we can bring together local actors um, to join forces on SDGs. So what we've really just heard about is some of the highlights of local implementation and some of the key ingredients that we really need to move things forward, whether that be Bristol, Baltimore, or even with the work that we've been doing together, Prithi, you and me. But what it's made me think about is, is this approach to local level implementation of a global policy agenda something new? And why have some urbanists and international actors claimed that the SDG agenda was a major victory for cities. Jessica, could you address that for me? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the idea of cities and localities taking a global agenda and you know applying it within their specific context is not new. The difference with the SDGs and the reason why many urbanists have said it was a real victory for cities is that it included an explicit commitment to take action on sustainable development in cities by national government leaders recognizing that they're frontiers of the sustainable development challenge, um, responsible for between you know, 65 and 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions. You know, I think the other thing we don't often talk about is things like the fact that urban land expansion is one of the primary drivers of habitat and biodiversity loss. So your cities have a, a, a crucial role um, in influencing the shape of our sustainable development future. But they're also sites of opportunity. I mean, soon two thirds of the population are gonna live in cities and they produce more than 80% of global GDP. So these are the places that will make or break sustainable development, and they really have to be involved. And there was a recognition by governments of that centrality, of the fact that these places and, their, and the people governing them were really fundamental to the success of this agenda. It was also a recognition by national governments of the importance of empowering local government actors creating national urban policies that would recognize the resource needs and the challenges of cities and take measures to start to address that, which in many ways really represented 
a bit of a fundamental power shift for many countries in the world, being forced to recognize that they have to decentralize some of their sustainable development planning and actually start a meaningful dialogue with local government actors on the kinds of resources and capacities, as well as the kinds of policy and legislative frameworks they need in order to lead on sustainable development. And I think finally, the other thing that was really quite transformative um, for those of us who were working in the UN and were very involved in the negotiation is it was quite a conceptual shift. You know, under the Millennium Development Goals, which were the predecessor to the SDGs, the focus was very much on outcomes. It was about eradicating poverty, ending hunger, and so on and so forth. And this was really the idea that we need to move away from this outcome-based um, kind of measurement towards thinking about opportunities and processes and policies and the ways in which we try to affect these changes. So not just looking at the end, but at the, um, you know, the sort of means we use to achieve those ends. And it was in particular recognizing the fact that in order to achieve many of these objectives, we have to work at a spatial scale. We need to look at integrated systems in cities. We need to look at how poverty and inequality and housing and sanitation and access to transport all interconnects and how effectively, if you don't design integrated policy, you can't really tackle these issues. And to do that, we need to use different sort of scales. So working at the city level was identified as a particularly powerful way to think about integrated um, policy and planning. So I think those were the three key reasons why it was really hailed and continues to be hailed as kind of quite a breakthrough um, in international circles and recognizing the importance of local government and in cities and urban spaces for achieving sustainable development. Another interesting point which is coming on out of our discussion today is global goals and local needs and priorities, uh, the need to really embed them in the context. And many countries have difficulties in addressing the goals at global level due to geopolitical distractions, national decision-making, and worldwide financial constraints. Do you think working towards the goals is more effective if, if approached locally? And I'm going to start with Hishon. Yes and no. So yes, in the sense that I think things like climate change and, and sustainable development are often misframed as global challenges. And I think it's almost more helpful to think of them as a million local challenges. So we do have climate change and we do have poverty and we have all of these things, but the, the fundamental problems are local. You know, it's about transport, transforming infrastructure in Lagos. It's about decarbonizing Berlin's energy grid. It's about uh, upgrading insulation in residential buildings in the UK, about encouraging more compact development in Los Angeles, right? So there isn't a there isn't sort of a single challenge. It's actually a, a really diverse collection of challenges that we have in lots of diverse places around around the world. And these are things that can only really be dealt with by local actors at the local level through local planning and political processes. So in that sense, yes, I think that we've got to think locally when addressing global challenges, recognizing that global challenges are actually aggregates of millions of local challenges. So that's one way of thinking about it. One of the really interesting things about the SDGs, unlike the Millennium Development Goals, was that a whole lot of different non-state actors have embraced them and really tried to engage with them seriously in a way that we didn't see in the previous generation. So what Jess was talking about in terms of doing things differently and thinking about processes, I think in many ways, one of the successes of the SDGs is that it has penetrated a much wider network of actors and stakeholders out there. So that's so that's good. So yes, local is very important. But at the same time, we do have to recognize that there are these different scales of action that are required. 
to address the global goals. So national governments will need to change legislation. They will need to incentivize certain types of behavior and investments. Transnational companies do need to do extensive work on their supply chains. We probably need some new international treaties. So that's a scale that just can't be addressed at the local. So we do need to empower local actors. I fully agree with that. But we also have to recognize what's not in their power and what changes they can't bring about on their own. I think that we there is often a danger of reifying community as a scale of action and, and essentially placing more responsibility on communities than I think is fair or, or, or reasonable given the multi-scalar nature of the challenges that we face. Uh, thank you for reminding us that this is a multi-scalar challenge. And uh, I like your point about hundreds of local challenges, but we also need that collective thinking and action. And uh, it is heartening to hear from you that uh, the SDGs have attracted kind of action uh, from non-state actors, because that is really reassuring. Jessica, I would love to hear more from you on this. I mean, I think I wholeheartedly agree with everything that Sean said. I think you need local and national level action, and not least of all because they have very different remits um, and contributions. Um, at the national level, you know, we need national governments to think about things like peace, security, and stability. I mean, you can't pursue local development if you're subject to conflict or other forms of, of stability. And that obviously sits more squarely oftentimes within the national government's purview. Um, you need to think about things like market incentives, um, the right policy frameworks. Um, it's national governments who often control, in the vast majority of cases, you know, the, the revenue that's going to be available for these kinds of sustainable development planning and policies. But also a really important point is that, you know, for many cities around the world, they don't have access to resources aside from that, which is, you know, given out essentially by the covers of their capital. And so they can't work independently of, of the national government without the right policy frameworks and without being given, you know, enabled, permitted to access markets and so on. So I think it has to be done concurrently. While UCL's academics and researchers are playing a leading role in responding to the challenges set out by the goals, our students are also helping to achieve the SDGs. We spoke to some of our students to get their thoughts on the SDGs and how they're being addressed around the world. Today, we are asking the question, which of the SDGs is the most important for humanity to address? I'm Laura Dewhurst and I'm studying for a Master's in Science Communication in UCL's Department of Science and Technology Studies. The most important sustainable development goal for humanity to address is climate action because the world depends on it. This needs to be done through routes that address inequalities. We need social transformation, not so-called techno-fixers. I'm Nazulia Fajirinigru and I'm studying at UCL's Bartlett School of Environment, Energy and Resources. The most important SDG for humanity to address is SDG 7, ensuring access to affordable, reliable, sustainable energy for all. By providing and sustaining energy, we ensure people can do essential activities to improve their lives. Now, coming to one of my favorite topics, as everybody knows who's heard this podcast before, one of the things that came up in previous conversations has been the importance of participatory research or co-creation with the communities so that development initiatives are more aligned to local priorities. And we've alluded to that when we started this podcast. Now, you've both highlighted the importance of civil society. And um, Sean, you've talked about that in the context of um, Bristol. But I was just wondering, co-creation in the true sense and participatory research in the true sense, is this an approach you've taken in Bristol? 
as a city with a history of strong communities and grassroots initiatives, has having the goals as a structure been beneficial? Yes. So the end of your question, just to be very clear, was do the SDGs provide a useful structure? And I would say in the context of Bristol, no, it's the other way around. So it was really the grassroots that drove the engagement with the SDGs rather than the SDGs providing the framework for that kind of activity. So it was already happening. And I think that that's true in lots of places around the world. I think that the SDGs are not a necessary framework for co-creating collective local visions and plans for solving challenges. Um, you know, We've mapped the SDGs onto the local priorities that were developed through these participatory and consultative processes in Bristol. Uh, and we've used the monitoring framework, framework of the SDGs. And I think in some ways, that's the thing that is easiest for lots of different actors to adopt is the monitoring framework, because what everybody lacks is a unified monitoring framework for sustainable development. And the SDGs kind of provided that, although biased towards nation states in terms of their formulation. And I think that that tension between recognizing the importance of communities, local engagement, local actors, uh, and the need for some kind of global collective action, I think that, like, that demands that we think differently, maybe about how we organize global collective action. And maybe we need to look beyond monolithic goals and targets and think more about different ways of doing things, about different ways of working. You know, I think that that was part of the impetus for the SDGs and they took us part of the way there. But I think there's more on that journey to go in terms of changing the way that we do global collective action to address these, these big challenges facing humanity and, and the planet. Okay, you've got me thinking now, really, how can we do things differently? and do things differently, particularly for global collective action. So building on that, Jessica, just wondered what your take on this is. Yeah, going back to, to the way Sean phrased it around has the framework been useful as a structure for sort of engaging communities and, and so on. I think it's been highly different in different contexts. Um, you know, in Baltimore, as I said before, where there was a real void, essentially, in um, kind of effective community engagement because of the breakdown of trust uh, between the sort of institutions of local government, particularly the police force, and many local residents in the city, uh, this was kind of seen as a chance to have a refresh or a reset. Um, there was an emergency government, there was going to be a new mayor coming in, and this was seen as a, a kind of way to frame a discourse and to kickstart those processes of sort of civic engagement with a completely new approach, essentially. So it was certainly helpful to start a dialogue. Um, I don't know if I could say it went necessarily beyond that. But in someone like San Jose in California, no, and much like the case of Bristol, there was already a very sophisticated sustainability planning structure in the city. There was already a, a whole host of very active civil society organizations who were working on this in partnership with their local councillors and so on. What the framework did it was get political attention. It got the existing community action, the existing community planning, the existing frameworks on the mayor's agenda and on the agenda of the city council members in the voting council. San Jose is a slightly different composition to many other cities. But um, essentially, it managed to get sustainable development on the city council you know, sheet as an item that was fundamental to debate, to discuss and to allocate resources to. And it gave profile to all of the existing community level initiatives that were already happening and then enabled a dialogue with other regions. So San Jose started liaising and working with Los Angeles, for example, um, and on you know all the cities on the, the Western seaboard in that area of California. And so I think it's it's been very useful in different ways for different purposes. But 
its primary objectives has been kind of as a political tool for fostering attention and elevating many community le- community level concerns and programs and initiatives um, to a level where they can get more resourcing, more attention and, and more kind of political spotlight. So what you're really highlighting as well is that we should use things in the proper way, you know, use the framework in the proper way at the right time for the proper purpose, but not that suddenly something's happened that hasn't been happening. It's not like suddenly civil societies suddenly do say doing something because they never did it before. Of course, civil society, we're always doing something. It's just that we now have a tool helps us to really put the spotlight on what is going on and we should use it in that way to facilitate action in some sort of um, in a, a positive change in a positive way. So in the last episode, Ruth and Andrea actually did stress the importance of inclusivity and actually looking at future generations and implementing both into policies. In the light of the current geopolitical tensions and crises that we're seeing, do you think the SDGs help mediate and align nation states and other actors around common development priorities? Yeah, I think that the SDGs do have an important role. I mean, there is, of course, huge geopolitical instability at the moment with Ukraine, with what's happening in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories and so on. And it's very easy for political discourse to, to be consumed by that. I think what the SDGs do is that they have provided a um, kind of consistent anchor for many of the most depressing environmental and, and sustainable development challenges of our time. And there is now a whole infrastructure associated with the SDGs. There's annual reporting. There's a, a dedicated forum in the for the international community with heads of state and government to report on their performance on different sustainable development challenges. And so they help bring us back out of the, the kind of day-to-day complexity and tragedy that is current geopolitics and make sure that we don't lose attention to these long-term sustainable development issues, um, which are particularly crucial for future generations. Very often, political actors who are so concerned with short-term priorities can lose sight of these issues, but the sustainable development goals give us a framework to say, actually, for the next generation, these conflicts and tensions might not be present. What will be present consistently is that, you know, sea levels are still rising and, um, you know, plastic is still pouring into the oceans. And so we need to also prioritize these long-term challenges too. And the SDGs give us a framework through which to do that and to hold the international community to account and to show that we are being responsive to the needs of future generations. Well, I think what it does tell us though, is that with multiple crises going on, there could be a danger that we forget that education is important, sanitation is important, poverty is important, um, because we're just trying to deal with the crises in front of us. And we keep going forwards and moving back, going forwards and moving back. So as you've really spoken about um, very eloquently is this real need for the framework or the SDGs to keep us held to account really in some sort of way and for governments not to forget all these other important issues that will support our future generation. We've also considered the question of what's missing from the goals in the last episode. We asked Ruth and Andrea what other areas of the goals should be included in what will inevitably follow the SDGs. So we would like to pose the same question to you. So Sean, starting with you, if you had the power to create an 18th goal, what would it look like? Um, I think it was uh, I think it was Anthony and Rochelle in one of the early episodes that made the that made the case 
that there are too many goals and targets. And I, I tend to agree. I think that more goals and targets makes it politically easier for people across sectors and in, and in different places to feel like they're part of the global agenda. So in that sense, it makes it easier to be inclusive. The flip side is, I think it has had the effect of accidentally reproducing the silos that the SDGs were trying to break down because people can essentially cherry pick goals and targets and indicators for themselves. Maybe what we need is something really different. So maybe we need a set of values and principles. So you know, what if we had something like a declaration of sustainable development? And there are some precedents for this. And I would point to the, the UK passed the Social Value Act in 2013. And this requires public sector organizations and their suppliers to look beyond the financial cost of a contract and consider how the services that they commission and procure can improve the economic, social, and environmental well-being of the area. It's not overly prescriptive, but it pushes decision-making in the right direction. It forces the procurement process, you know, very dull-sounding process, but critical. <laughs> it forces those kinds of decisions in the right direction. And what if we had something like that for sustainable global sustainable development? You know, some kind of charter that organizations could sign up to with a set of principles for decision makers who are all basically facing the same challenge of allocating resources, scarce resources. And you could commit to those, you could publicly commit to those, and you could be held accountable for the decisions that you make, the investments you make, the policies that you implement, the things that you consume, et cetera. So I, I, I would almost push back against goals and tar targets entirely and try to bring it back to an even more fundamental issue about embodying the values of sustainable development and having a set of principles to follow to make the right choices as often as possible. Wonderful. I really feel inspired uh, by your point on principles and values for future generations. And what is the legacy that we are going to leave behind for those future generations? And that's taking me right back to Brundtlin Commission and the definition of what sustainable development is. And also to remind everyone, we do have 17 goals and a lot of targets, 169 targets. Jessica, I'm going to turn to you for the same question. And drawing on your past experience and also your global experience of negotiating the SDGs, if you were creating an 18th goal, what would it be? And given that you were part of previous negotiations, were there any themes or topics that were left out last time? So I spent a big chunk of my professional career in this negotiation forum. And whilst I came to the table, certainly in 2012, when I was supporting the high-level panel of eminent persons who were coming up with the first proposal for what the SDGs could look like, I was strongly in the camp of saying it needs to be tight, it needs to be concise, maybe it should be values-oriented, um, and so on. By the time we got to 2015, I could not have been more positive about the 17 goals we got. It was a triumph of international cooperation that we managed to agree on just 17 goals, that we managed to whittle down from what was at one point, I, ha I still have it on my computer, I have a list of 47 goals that were being deliberated by the Open Working Group co-chairs um, who were the negotiators facilitating the process. And you know the fact that we managed to get down, we managed to agree on things like moving a whole goal that was proposed around cultural heritage and around cultural ideas of sort of supporting, um, you know, history and all the rest moved underneath a different target. I mean, that was a huge debate. Um, and eventually there was compromise in trying to move it partially under goal 11, recognizing that many sites of cultural heritage are within cities and urban environments. But of course, it's still quite exclusionary. You know, so that immediately showed you that there were a lot of topics that have huge value that could have been a goal easily 
But, you know, we had to make some hard and fast decisions and we need to focus minds. So I think the SDGs were a massive achievement and I certainly wouldn't suggest we need any more. In terms of whether you could convert this to a set of values, as Sean suggests, I would actually argue against that for two reasons. One is that, you know, even today, there is a very stern and tense debate around the human rights agenda because of arguments about cultural hegemony. How are you going to decide what values count? How are you going to express that in ways that are universally accepted? And how are you going to make sure that that's interpreted and implemented in ways that everyone agrees with? And that's partly why so many of the goals and targets that we've had within the UN since the 2000s have been outcome focused, because it has been about letting countries decide their own trajectory, their own approach, recognizing their own cultural systems or in value systems and beliefs, as long as we ultimately all end up, you know, at the same positive place. So I think there's that that one counter argument. I think the other counter argument would be that there are some very specific things we need to achieve as a planet. You know, if you look at planetary systems, if you look at biodiversity, hydrological systems and so on, we are, you know, destroying waterways. We are destroying um, the quality of our atmospheric systems and so on and so forth. And those are really quite quantitative things we can measure, we can capture, we can track over time. And so why wouldn't we be ambitious enough as to say we need to see demonstrable change in the quality of these systems and reductions in the destruction we've made upon these these systems? We can count that. We can track it. Modern science is sufficiently sophisticated for us to be able to do that. So why wouldn't we try and set ourselves the task of trying to reduce some of these these aspects? And if you leave it to a values-based approach to pursuing sustainable development, we can't guarantee that we will all have the same level of ambition and we can't guarantee that we'll necessarily pull in the same direction. Now, I recognize that in some ways that sort of condescending and not appreciating the fact that countries the world over all ultimately you know, have and future generations want to see the sustainability of our systems and hopefully we all share common values and beliefs about what that should look like. But I, there is a lot of room for di- divergence of opinion. So why would we not try and set some very clear, crisp targets that we think are feasible that we can monitor over time? So however many years on, I continue to be a strong supporter of the Sustainable Development Goals and I will continue to be so until they reach their deadline. And I always find it very interesting when our guests don't agree with each other. It's always great to have a a debate and make us think and reflect on different perspectives. So as we draw this two-part episode to a close, and maybe you feel you've answered this already, but maybe we'll just let you have another go, really. Do you think we can truly achieve the goals by 2030? Or should new goals, I know we've talked about whether we need new goals or not new goals, etc., but... Do you think we can achieve the goals by 2030 or should new goals be created to act as its successor? Sean? Well, I think the evidence is pretty clear that we won't achieve the 2030 goals. The recent reports that have been published suggest that we're well well off track. I don't think that's an argument for abandoning the goals. I think we, we must stay the course to 2030. We must continue to pressure organizations, governments, et cetera, to, to, to try to achieve the goals. And I think we should try to find ways of working with different stakeholders to achieve the goals. So I think we still there's more work to be done on how we effectively engage stakeholders across sectors and across geographies to, to do this effectively. So we won't achieve them, but we can't stop trying. That's the first, first part of my answer. But then I, I would come back and say, I think that's evidence that maybe this isn't the right approach. If we can't shift the dial that much 
and in fact, in some cases, we seem to be backsliding a bit, then maybe this approach isn't the best approach to global collective action. Maybe we do need to rethink it. And maybe it just says that the values-based approach isn't the way to go. But I do think we should allow ourselves to think outside the box and we should start doing that now so that when we do get to 2030 and we've done our best to achieve the sustainable development goals and we have failed, we have some fresh thinking. And I think engaging young people in particular is, is probably really important in trying to get some out of the box thinking about how we could do this better. And 2030 is really not that far away, is it? You know, it's, it's coming very fast towards us. So Jessica, I'll give you the last word on this. Thank you. I, I agree with Sean. We absolutely need to keep the foot on the pedal and focus attention and minds towards the 2030 deadline. You know, they were always very ambitious as the predecessor framework was as well. And, you know, many of those targets we didn't achieve. Uh, but nonetheless, they were a mobilizing framework. They have catalyzed investment, attention, new actors, corporate engagement. So they have definitely had a value. And I think they will continue to do so until 2030. And we just need to continue the pressure. I think about looking forward, you know, we are in a very different political context now to where we were in 2015 with a very different constellation of world leaders. And I think if we were to open Pandora's box and try and renegotiate today those SDGs, I, I think we would not get them. I think we were very fortuitous at the time that there was such a strong focus on kind of reinvigorating multilateralism, uh, a very internationalist perspective amongst a you know, cohort of world leaders, some very strong personalities, you know, like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia, President Yudo Honyo of Indonesia, who really played very, very instrumental roles in pushing forward the agenda who we don't have now. However, um, I do think that we, do sh we should think about there being some ambitious successor framework. We should think about ways to continue attention and momentum. My area of interest is, I think, thinking more about the regional approach, as you discussed in previous podcasts, I thinking outside the box. And I don't know if this would work, but we've seen increasing energy and attention to cooperation at regional scales. You know, we've seen real empowerment of ECLAC, the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, much stronger role being played by many um, African regional entities, the African Union, but also groups like ECOWAS. And I think it's going to be increasingly interesting to think about whether these targets and objectives need to be defined more regionally and whether it needs to be more of a regional development effort uh, that, you know, of course, could have some level of global aggregation, but that's not really where the specificity sits. So I'm certainly super, very interested in how this conversation evolves. Absolutely. And I look forward to reading those um, articles um, when you publish them. I think a healthy debate is always good because it feels like, yes, we need to keep the foot on the pedal. We've got very little time until 2030, but equally, we also need fresh thinking, innovation. We need to be better engage the youth in the challenge uh, that faces us. Thank you both for joining us today. Where can listeners find you online, on Twitter, social media? Sean, let's start with you. You can find me on Twitter or X, I guess it is now, at, at Dr. Sean Fox. If you want to learn more about the SDG work in Bristol, you can go to uh, bristolsdgs.org. Hi, yes, I'm on Twitter or X and you can find me at Jessica SB. So yes, I'd love to welcome comments and reflections following today's discussion. You've been listening to Unlocking the SDGs. This episode was presented by me, Professor Monica Lackenball. And me, Professor Preeti Parik. And produced by the UCL SDGs Initiative and edited by Frontier. Our guests today were Professor Sean Fox and Dr. Jessica Espy. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from UCL, 
subscribe to UCL Minds wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk slash SDG. Join us next time on Unlocking the SDGs. Mm-hmm.